is EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. Over the last two decades, there has been a ton of work on sepsis and septic shock, a ton of data that has come out, and it has been a real focus of our management to improve care in sepsis and septic shock in order to reduce mortality and morbidity. There are some core pieces to our management, including early antibiotics after recognition, source identification and control, IV fluids, although we know there's a lot of debate on exactly how much and what kind, but I think most people are okay with giving some fluids, and then vasopressors to maintain perfusion. While there's a host of research on improving those pieces, there's also continued focus on additional interventions that may be useful. And one that's starting to get a lot of attention is methylene blue. Most of us are familiar with methylene blue as the antidote for methemoglobinemia, but this is a very different use. Methylene blue has a number of interesting physiologic effects, which is why it's being investigated for this use. It inhibits inducible nitric oxide synthase as well as its downstream enzyme-soluble guanylate cyclase. Through these mechanisms, it restores vasoregulation. Much of the work around this drug is in vasoplegia following cardiopulmonary bypass, which is a form of vasodilatory shock, and why it is being looked at for septic shock, another form of vasodilatory shock. The idea of using methylene blue in septic shock is that it may reduce the amount and duration of vasoactive agents needed to maintain systemic perfusion. This is important because vasopressors like norepinephrine can induce tachydysrhythmias, myocardial dysfunction, and peripheral ischemia, particularly when used for prolonged durations at higher doses. The evidence for using methylene blue here is extremely limited. There's a couple of small studies showing inconsistent outcomes, but a new study published in Critical Care in 2023 gives us some additional insight. This is early adjunctive methylene blue in patients with septic shock, a randomized control trial. What this group did was perform a single center parallel double blind randomized control trial asking the question, does methylene blue expedite the discontinuation of pressors in patients with septic shock? Patients were randomized to receive methylene blue as an IV infusion, 100 milligrams in 500 mLs of 0.9% saline over six hours, once daily times three doses, or they were in the placebo arm, they just got 500 cc's of 0.9% saline. The group enrolled 92 patients over a five-year period of time. Most of the patients were mechanically ventilated. They were on significant doses of norepinephrine, and most were on vasopressin as well. The time to discontinue of vasopressors was shorter in the methylene blue group by about a one-day difference, about 25 hours. There were a number of secondary outcomes here, and they did show a shorter ICU length of stay and a shorter hospital length of stay. There was no difference in liberation from mechanical ventilation or mortality between the groups. And this all brings us to our real question, should we be reaching for methylene blue in patients with septic shock and high vasopressor requirements? I just don't think the data is there yet. This data is hopeful, but it's far from conclusive, and there are some important limitations for us to consider. It was only single center, 
only 92 patients over five years, which means that there was likely a selection bias going on, which reduces both the internal and external validity, making it really hard to apply this data forward. But most importantly, the primary endpoint isn't patient-centered, and it's unclear if it's even clinically important. Does stopping norepinephrine a day earlier lead to a better outcome? We just don't know. The authors are enthusiastic about their outcomes, and they call for larger randomized trials, which is pretty reasonable. I don't think we should be reaching for this in our clinical practice right now based on the evidence that we have. Mechanistically, it seems that there is something there, but we just need better data with patient-centered outcomes before we should start administering this. Still, it's important for us to know what's kicking around out there in the literature, and I wouldn't be surprised if some of us get asked from one of our critical care colleagues to do this. So now we can know what the basis of that recommendation is, and we can keep an eye out for better data that might prompt us to add this to our armamentarium. That, of course, was Anand Swabinathan. Thanks for the heads up about methylene blue for the really sick septic patient. Next up, we've got Noor Khatib on jaw dislocations. Now, I've seen many different TMJ dislocation reduction techniques used with varying success. My personal first-line fave is the syringe method. And if that doesn't work, then the usual thumbs-in-the-mouth method. But the key being making sure the patient's occiput is flat against a hard surface and providing some torque by lifting up the chin while pushing down on the molars with my thumbs. Let's hear what else we can learn about TMJ dislocations. Hello, everyone. This is Noor Khatib with another Rural Quick Hit. Reductions are one of my favorite ED procedures. Immediate relief for the patient and immediate satisfaction for every ED doctor's love of quick problem solving. When I'm working in a rural ED, though, I don't have a second physician to help with sedation. Often I'm doing both, but I always appreciate learning new techniques which require the least number of resources, like the Cunningham technique, the hematoma wrist block, the pulled elbows, ah, the satisfying clunk of a joint reducing. Is there a better feeling on a busy shift? Maybe a negative D-dimer. Jaw dislocations are not an uncommon presentation to the ED. I've personally seen two this year. The patient comes in, unable to close their mouth, has garbled speech, and is often drooling. Most commonly, it's an anterior dislocation, and it's most commonly atraumatic. From yawning, eating, or even a dental procedure. Those dentists ask you to open really wide. Now, if it's a traumatic dislocation, it's often superior and posterior as a dislocation for trauma. And it's not uncommon to dislocate both sides. The traditional technique where the physician places both thumbs in the patient's mouth on the lower molars and applies inferior than posterior force has worked for me in the past. But number one, it requires a good amount of force and so pain for the patient. Number two, patients are usually sedated for it and so taking up more ED resources. And lastly, there is a risk of injury to the physician. I don't know about you, but I worry about getting bit when I do these. There are four anterior jaw dislocation methods. I'll be describing the extraoral technique and the syringe method for anterior dislocations. For the extraoral technique, there's one anatomical feature to keep in mind. You've got your mandible, which consists of the body, ankle, and ramus. All right, bear with me, I'm describing anatomy verbally. Closer to the cheekbone, you've got your coronoid process anteriorly, and then there's a semicircle dip in the bone, then the condyle posteriorly, which makes up your TMJ bone. Are you with me? Now, normally you can't palpate the coronoid process. 
Remember, the coronoid process is anterior. But then when the jaw is dislocated, you can in fact palpate the coronoid process in the cheek extraorally because it's pushed forward. So here's the extraoral technique. No sedation needed, rural doc approved. Step one, place the patient in a sitting position and face the patient. Step two, place the tip of your thumb on the patient's cheek. Feel for the pointy coronoid process. Remember, you can't normally feel this unless there's an anterior dislocation. Step three, apply persistent pressure posteriorly. Step four, you can place your other fingers behind the angle of the mandible to stabilize your grip. Lastly, on the non-dislocated side, you'll use your other hand to grip the angle of the mandible and apply anterior force. So to summarize, on the dislocated side, feel the coronoid, push posteriorly. On the non-dislocated side, grab the angle of the mandible and pull anteriorly. Do that at the same time. Clunk. It's back in. The patient is smiling and you high five and they're never going back to that dentist again. Now, on to the second no sedation technique, the syringe technique. This was first described by Gorjinsky in 2014 and according to their small study, it worked 30 out of 31 times. This is easy. Patient has a dislocated jaw. You place a 5 or 10 cc syringe between the upper and inferior molars of the affected side. The size of the syringe just depends on the mouth opening. Ask the patient to roll the syringe back and forth, back and forth between the teeth. Boom. Reduced. And there you have it. Two jaw reduction techniques with minimal discomfort, minimal force, and of course, no sedation. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much, Dr. Khatib. I'm definitely going to try that pushing the coronoid posteriorly technique for the next TMJ dislocation I see. All right, next up, we have Hans Rosenberg on our Best of CGEM series, who's going to give us just the facts we need to know about a condition that doesn't scream emergency most of the time, but that we see a lot of, and sometimes these patients can get into some deep doo-doo. And that condition is Crohn's disease. Take it away, Dr. Rosenberg. First, let's make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. What is Crohn's disease? Well, Crohn's disease is a chronic and progressive inflammatory condition that can affect any part of the gastrointestinal tract. Unlike ulcerative colitis, which only involves the colon, Crohn's disease can impact various segments of the GI tract. It typically manifests in the second to fourth decade of life, with another peak between the ages of 50 and 80. Now, just to make sure that we're on the same page as our gastroenterology colleagues, I also want to talk about the three major phenotypes of Crohn's disease. These are as follows. Inflammatory, stricturing, and penetrating. The disease course usually starts with inflammation alone, but can progress to stricturing or penetrating complications over time. Additionally, there is a separate phenotype called perianal Crohn's disease, which involves abscesses and fistulas in the anal area. Crohn's disease can have extraintestinal manifestations as well that can affect the skin, musculoskeletal system, and eyes. Alright, so now that we all know what Crohn's disease and what the major phenotypes are, what is it that emergency physicians really want to know? How do these patients present to the emergency department? Well, Crohn's disease is characterized by episodes of remission and exacerbations. Several factors can trigger exacerbations, including medication noncompliance, use of NSAIDs, 
antibiotics, and smoking. The symptoms associated with exacerbations can vary depending on the disease location, severity, and importantly here, knowing the phenotype. General symptoms may include fatigue, weight loss, abdominal pain, and exacerbations of extraintestinal manifestations. Inflammatory phenotype exacerbations commonly involve increased stool frequency and reduced stool consistency, along with some possible rectal bleeding. Stricturing phenotype exacerbations may include abdominal pain, nausea or vomiting, bloating, and obstipation. Patients with penetrating phenotype may experience abscesses or fistulas. And finally, perianal Crohn's disease with fistulas often presents with discharge, abscesses, and anal pain. Severe exacerbations of any of the phenotypes may have systemic findings such as severe abdominal pain, oral intolerance, volume depletion, and more than six episodes of bloody diarrhea per day. Of course, like all other diseases, Crohn's may have mimics and we'll review those briefly. These include any conditions really that would have increased abdominal pain, increased stool frequency, and these can include, of course, infectious diarrhea. One of the big concerns in a Crohn's patient would especially be C. diff infection. Other conditions that can mimic stricturing exacerbations include incarcerated hernias, volvulus, adhesions from prior surgeries, and malignancy. For abscesses or fistulas, perforated diverticulitis, appendicitis, malignancy, and postoperative complications can mimic a penetrating Crohn's disease exacerbation. So now you're ready to recognize a Crohn's patient and how they will present to the emergency department. Well, what is the workup in the emergency department for these patients? When evaluating severe exacerbations, regardless of the dominant phenotype, general investigations should include CBC, electrolytes, creatinine, and liver enzymes. In addition, albumin and a CRP would be helpful. For inflammatory predominant exacerbations, stool studies like culture and sensitivity, C. diff, and ovin parasites are recommended. Fecal calprotectin, which is a protein that's detected in stool samples, can be more sensitive than CRP for luminal inflammation, but unfortunately it is not widely available for point-of-care testing yet. However, this may be helpful for your consultant colleagues. In patients with suspected sepsis and intra-abdominal abscesses, emergency T imaging of the abdomen and pelvis, blood cultures, and urinalysis may be necessary. Choosing wisely guidelines suggest obtaining a CT scan only when a complication or alternate pathology is suspected. For detecting perianal fistulas and abscesses, MRI is the preferred imaging modality. However, we must realize this is not readily available in many centers across Canada and throughout the world in the emergency department. Alternatively, an examination under anesthesia by a surgeon can be considered for suspected perianal disease. Finally, although we will often involve consultants in the care of these patients, I do think that emergency physicians need to know what the treatment of a patient with Crohn's disease may entail. The general principles for managing Crohn's disease exacerbations in the emergency department focus on identifying complications, correcting fluid and electrolyte imbalances, discontinuing offending agents like NSAIDs, and treating concomitant infections. The specific treatment recommendations really depend on the disease phenotype. Inflammatory exacerbations, for example, are often started on oral prednisone at 40 milligrams daily for two weeks, followed by a 5 milligram taper per week. 
Alternatively, safer corticosteroid options with limited systemic exposure, such as entocort for distal small bowel disease or cortamint for colonic disease, may be considered. Stricturing exacerbations that result in complete bowel obstructions may require NG decompression and surgical consultation. In selected cases with an inflammatory component, corticosteroids may also be warranted. For penetrating complications like abscesses, bowel perforation, or sepsis, broad-spectrum antibiotics are of course recommended. Prompt drainage by interventional radiology or surgery should be considered based on abscess size and location. Immunosuppressive therapies, including steroids, should usually be avoided until source control is achieved. Discharge of these patients will depend on a number of factors, including patient symptoms, ability to tolerate oral intake, complications, and consultation with your specialist colleagues. Now for our advertising segment brought to you by Metricade, the amazing scheduling system. Metricade can actually predict what the average physician-to-time assessment will be any given day by looking at the physician lineup. You know, some of my colleagues see two patients an hour, some see three or four or five patients an hour. If your group wants, Metricade will build the schedule based on this information as well as what shifts everyone prefers to work, creating a lineup that can handle the inflow of patients hour by hour. Best of all, the schedule still feels like self-scheduling rather than a performance algorithm. Next up, we have my colleague at North York General Hospital, Dr. Gil Yehudif, who you may remember from his excellent procedural presentations, chest tube insertion and LP from the last couple of EM cases summits. He's going to talk about something I see more often than I think necessary, and that is seeing patients bounce back with renal colic who were not given an NSAID on their last visit and or weren't given a prescription for NSAIDs to take home. He'll talk about this and some more great stuff on treating pain in patients with renal colic. Thanks, Anton. It's great to be back on the podcast. Let's start off with a case. A 45-year-old male presents to your emergency department with sudden onset left flank pain that began an hour ago. He tells your nursing colleagues that this is exactly the same as his last episode of renal colic and that his pain is currently 10 out of 10. As usual, the department is busy, and so you're asked to order him something for pain until he can be seen. Assuming he has no other medical history and no allergies, what is your go-to treatment for renal colic? Okay, well, let's take a step back and get nerdy for just a minute. How do ureteric stones cause pain? Well, the most predominantly understood mechanism is that ureteric stones cause stretch. This stretch stimulates synthesis and release of various prostaglandins. These in turn stimulate afferent vasodilation, diuresis, leading to increased intrarenal pressure. They also directly stimulate ureteric smooth muscle spasms. So in short, prostaglandin's bad. This helps explain why NSAIDs are considered the first-line treatment for renal colic. They inhibit the formation of these prostaglandins. But do they work better than opioids? Or do they work well enough? Well, what does the evidence suggest? We have multiple studies now comparing NSAIDs to opioids and even to IV paracetamol. In short, NSAIDs are as good if not better than opioids at reducing pain, doing it relatively quickly and with fewer adverse events such as nausea and vomiting, respiratory depression, and GI motility issues. Now, IV paracetamol seems to work quite well too, but it's unavailable in Canada and relatively expensive, so we won't talk much more about it. However, there is probably more to renal colic. Because in most studies, there are still about a third of patients who receive NSAIDs alone with inadequate pain control. And for me, that's just not acceptable. 
In one study, the combination of 15 milligrams IV ketorolac and 5 milligrams IV morphine showed even better pain control and less need for rescue analgesia. Anecdotally, I find this to be the case as well. Now, often our goal is to avoid the use of opioids when possible. Other modalities have been suggested and some studied, including the use of antihistamines, antispasmodics, IV fluids, dexamethasone, and even acupuncture. Unfortunately, the best evidence suggests that they don't help or at least need further studying. And in the best case scenario, the need for rescue analgesia without an opioid is still upward of 30%. Okay, so we've decided to give an NSAID and an opioid up front. But does the root matter? Turns out that IV ketorolac really does work faster than PO or rectal, but only with a slight increase in benefit and a slight increase in adverse events as well. Rectal NSAIDs are a very reasonable alternative in the vomiting patient, as are PO NSAIDs in those who can tolerate it. The need for rescue analgesia in all three is similar. And let's face it, intramuscular medications hurt. Now, I know some of you out there are thinking, what about my patients who can't take NSAIDs? I think we need to consider these patients on a case-by-case basis. A single dose of an NSAID on a patient with an OAC is probably fine. A remote history of a peptic ulcer is not the same as a recent upper GI bleed. We can also select our NSAIDs with some intention. COX-2 inhibitors. They're reasonable. They have less GI symptoms. Naproxen has less cardiac adverse events. Ibuprofen has less renal events. We can prescribe PPIs for those with GI risk factors. And in general, prescribe the lowest effective dose for the shortest duration. Listen, ultimately, if you feel that NSAIDs are truly a no-no in your patient, then just don't use them. Practically speaking, I'd add POC to Minifin instead. So how am I going to treat this patient? For now, I'm still using IV ketorolac and IV morphine up front with a PRN antiemetic. In a patient with nausea, without nausea, and with less severe pain up front, I'll use PO meds instead. In a patient who can't take NSAIDs, I'll substitute acetaminophen. In a patient who prefers to avoid opioids, well, I'll tell them it's reasonable. And I'll have a shared discussion about how roughly two-thirds of patients will get adequate analgesia with NSAIDs alone. Finally, when I discharge my patient, I make sure to prescribe them an NSAID, plus or minus a PPI if indicated, and I'll tell them to use acetaminophen plus the NSAID together as first-line treatment. I'll also offer them a prescription for a rectal NSAID, such as diclofenac, 50 milligrams. Anecdotally, many patients I see in return visits are not using an NSAID at home. And yes, I will still prescribe them a breakthrough opioid, such as morphine 5 to 10 milligrams immediate release to be used as needed. Thank you so much, Dr. Yehudef. Now, the only quibble I have about this excellent segment is about dosing for both NSAIDs and morphine. Now, I feel I need to go on a little bit of a rant here. So, Dr. Yehudef mentioned 15 milligrams of IV ketorolac and 5 milligrams of IV morphine. It's been well established in the literature that the ceiling dose of ketorolac is 10 milligrams. So if you give any more than 10 milligrams of IV ketorolac, the analgesic effect is no greater, but the risk of side effects are. There really is no reason I can think of to give any more than 10 milligrams of IV ketorolac ever. Then there's morphine dosing. I've grumbled about this before on EM cases that many docs think that morphine isn't as effective as hydromorphone, but I'm pretty sure that's because we often underdose morphine. The starting dose of IV morphine is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram. So 5 milligrams of IV morphine is going to underdose the vast majority of adults that we see with renal colic. 
Now, I'm a skinny adult. I weigh about 72 kilograms. If I needed morphine for whatever reason, I would hope that the ED doc who orders it orders at least 7 milligrams IV, not 5 milligrams. That larger adult who weighs 100 kilograms, they need 10 milligrams of IV morphine, not 5. And the problem with underdosing morphine besides not providing adequate analgesia is that now you're playing catch-up and you repeat the 5 milligrams again and again, each time not being quite the right dose, and so sometimes you end up with more side effects than you would have if you just gave the right dose up front. Now, all that being said, I know if the patient's frail and older, of course you need to start with lower doses of morphine. But for that 40-year-old guy, 80-kilogram guy who comes in with searing renal colic and is not settled with just Ketorolac alone, I'm starting with 8 milligrams of IV morphine. Okay, rant is over. Now, I asked Britt Long to review the literature on steroid inhalers for asthma because the evidence would suggest that emergency physicians aren't great at prescribing steroids properly for patients that we see in the emergency department with asthma. We all know how to manage asthma exacerbation, but there are some finer points when it comes to discharging that patient. We're going to ensure they have albuterol and an oral steroid for discharge But what else should you be prescribing? The literature and guidelines are all on board with prescribing inhaled steroids for symptom control, but you might be asking yourself several questions. First, why should you as an emergency clinician be concerned about inhaled steroids? What do the data show? What are the guidelines? And how can I do this in the ED? We're going to cover all of these questions on inhaled steroids for asthma exacerbation in today's Quick Hits. First, let's look at what a controller medication does for the patient with asthma. A controller is a medication taken every day on a long-term basis. And in asthma, an inhaled steroid has several major functions for symptom control. Multiple studies suggest that low-dose Inhaled steroids improve lung function and they improve symptom control. Plus, they reduce airway inflammation, the risk of exacerbation, the need for an ED visit, and total exposure to systemic steroids. All things we want for these patients. What about the actual data? A Cochrane review published in 2021 provides the best summary of what's out there. This review included five studies with over 9,600 patients. All of the included studies used budesonide, 200 micrograms, with formoterol, 6 micrograms as a combination inhaler. The review found that the combined inhaler reduced exacerbations requiring systemic steroids when compared to a beta agonist inhaler alone with an odds ratio of 0.45. The combination also reduced the odds of an asthma-related hospital admission or ED visit with an odds ratio of 0.35, and it decreased the rate of adverse events and exposure to systemic steroids. When you look at the overall relapse rate of 10-20% to for an asthma exacerbation, 
These findings suggest that inhaled steroids play a big role in asthma. The problem is that we're terrible at prescribing inhaled steroids from the ED. A retrospective study published in 2023 in the Journal of Emergency Medicine included 3,948 visits of adult patients with asthma. Authors found an inhaled steroid was prescribed for just 6% of patients with asthma exacerbation discharged from the ED. For patients with two or more ED visits over 12 months, the rate was 6.7%. Plus, only 14% of these patients had follow-up within 30 days. There was also a lower chance of receiving a prescription for those of Hispanic ethnicity, black race, or those with private or no insurance. Lots of room for improvement here. Those are the data. What do the major guidelines say? The Global Initiative for Asthma 2022 guidelines are definitely on the side of inhaled steroids, and they recommend against using a Saba alone for symptom control. In the ED, they recommend using inhaled high-dose steroids within the first hour if the patient does not receive systemic steroids. But in most cases, we're giving no systemic steroids. Now, if you're discharging the patient, the guidelines recommend prescribing a regular, ongoing inhaled steroid if the patient is not already on one. If they do have a steroid inhaler at home, they recommend increasing the dose for a couple weeks. You may not be thinking about this, but an ED presentation for these patients is a big deal and it's a major risk factor for recurrent exacerbation. The most important takeaway from these guidelines is that an inhaled steroid is the preferred first step treatment in the management pathway for patients who are discharged from the ED not a Saba alone. The guidelines recommend using a combined steroid with formoterol on an as-needed basis for the regular outpatient management pathway. That's for the patient with symptoms less than twice a month and no risk factors for an exacerbation. Obviously, not the group we see in the ED. They're already there for an exacerbation but that combination inhaler can be expensive depending on the patient's insurance and resources. I prefer prescribing an inhaled steroid for a controller and then a Saba for worsening symptoms, which is another possibility in these guidelines. Inhaled steroids combined with systemic steroids is a bit more controversial in the literature with conflicting results for adult patients. The key here is to get the patient a prescription for the inhaled steroid and make sure they understand how important this is. The final guideline we'll look at comes from the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program Coordinating Committee Expert Panel Working Group. In patients aged 12 years and older with mild, persistent asthma, the expert panel conditionally recommends either daily low-dose inhaled steroids 
and an as-needed Saba for quick relief therapy or as-needed inhaled steroids and a Saba used together. Second, they recommend that patients aged 4 years and older with moderate to severe persistent asthma should use a single combination inhaler with inhaled steroids and for Moderol as a daily controller and reliever therapy. So with all of that, what are your takeaways? The major point here is to at least think about prescribing an inhaled steroid in that patient who comes into the ED with an asthma exacerbation, you've turned them around, and now they're ready for discharge. An inhaled steroid like budesonide, 200 to 400 micrograms, or fluticasone, 100 to 250 micrograms every day can reduce the risk of exacerbation, ED visits, and admission, and it improves lung function. Just make sure to tell the patient to swish with some water and spit after using the steroid inhaler. This is safe, it's easy, and I can guarantee that your patients will appreciate the better symptom control and lower likelihood of needing to come back when they receive a steroid inhaler. Excellent. Thanks so much, Dr. Long. Now, he did mention that it's controversial to give both oral steroids like dexamethasone or prednisone together with inhaled steroids. But my argument for giving a prescription for both oral and inhaled steroids from the ED is that your oral steroid prescription is going to be for just a few days and cover that patient just in that acute phase, but they should be on some kind of steroid for weeks to prevent all those outcomes that Dr. Long was talking about. And so for simplicity, I give them a prescription for both a short course of oral and long course of inhaled steroids so that they're covered not only in the acute phase, but for weeks after, which will hopefully improve all those outcomes that Dr. Long mentioned. Before we get to our last quick hit, just a quick announcement about Podcast Camp. Podcast Camp is one of my favorite courses that I put on. It's all about producing and delivering the best education podcasts that you possibly can. If you're interested in podcasting for medical education or you're already an established podcaster, this course is for you. It's over three Thursdays, November 30th, December 7th, and December 14th. All the information you need is at podcastcamp.org. The tickets are now on sale and limited to only 20 spots. There are fantastic podcasters who have taken the course in the past. Salim Rizé from Rebel EM, Aaron Ciel from the Casted course, Roy Baskin from the Cephalopod podcast, and many more. So hope to see you all there online. All right, now when you get a major trauma patient and you're thinking of giving lots of blood, unless you have a protocol that's automatically triggered, there is one really important consideration that's sometimes overlooked. Here's traumatologist Andrew Petrosoniak on hypocalcemia in the bleeding trauma patient. Let's talk about calcium in the trauma patient. You're working in a large community hospital you're taking care of a 53-year-old female involved in an MVC. She has a positive fast. Her BP is 92 on 50 and a heart rate of 120. You're confident she's in part experiencing hemorrhagic shock. You begin the process of arranging transport to your regional trauma center. While you're waiting, you order the patient two units of PAC cells. First unit's infusing, 
and a colleague assisting you with the recess asks if you think the patient should receive some calcium. The answer? Well, here's the bottom line up front. There really isn't high-quality evidence to support or refute empiric calcium administration in bleeding trauma patients. But my practice is to administer calcium after every two to three units of PAC cells. This seems to align with the rest of the medical literature and recommendations. But let's look at this more closely. Why do trauma patients become hypocalcemic? First, it's really the ionized calcium we're talking about. I know we often measure total calcium, which is fine at first, but we really should get an ionized calcium shortly after because it's that one that is the biologically active version and not impacted by, among other things, like total albumin. In trauma patients, there's two main ways that patients become hypocalcemic. Number one is bleeding. It causes loss of calcium ions and disturbances in calcium homeostasis, and this is linked with increased sympathetic activity. And number two, the treatment of bleeding by red blood cell administration, which contains citrate. Citrate chelates the calcium in the blood. Normally, citrate can be easily handled, metabolized by the liver. But if the liver is dysfunctional, which can occur in trauma, or if the rate of citrate transfused is just too great, it begins to accumulate, and then this results in a drop in calcium level. What's the clinical impact of hypocalcemia? At a pathophysiologic level, calcium has multiple roles. And don't worry, we're not going to go deep into reciting the clotting cascade. But calcium does play integral roles at various points in the clotting cascade by assisting with clotting factor binding, clotting factor activation, platelet adhesion, and activation. It's also integral in myocardial contractility. In hypocalcemic states, myocardial contractility can be depressed and results in worsening acidosis and shock. What does this translate to at patient level? Well, hypocalcemia is an independent predictor for multiple transfusions, greater morbidity, and overall mortality. And likely, this is closely linked with the worsening coagulopathy. In fact, the lethal triad of trauma that we're all familiar with, comprising of acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy, has been recently updated to be the lethal diamond, or at least this is what has been proposed. And the fourth component is hypocalcemia. So how can we apply this understanding of calcium and trauma in the clinical arena? We know from the literature that in some cases, up to 50% of hypotensive trauma patients are hypocalcemic upon arrival in the ED, even before receiving blood products. So something's happening either immediately or shortly after the trauma that's causing this. Then when we give blood, we risk worsening the hypocalcemia even more. The challenge, however, is that not every bleeding trauma patient is hypocalcemic, either upon arrival or following blood product administration. In fact, there's a minority of patients who are found to be hypercalcemic, and these patients also have worse outcomes compared to those who have normal calcium levels. Anecdotally, many of the trauma patients I see that require blood are hypocalcemic, but not all. Admittedly, I can't recall the last time I saw a bleeding trauma patient with hypercalcemia, but it's well described in literature, so it happens. In a nice paper recently describing calcium levels in trauma patients, and I'll link this in the show notes. The authors point out that we don't really know, however, whether calcium levels are more just a reflection of injury severity. That is, that those who are really sick have impaired calcium homeostasis from the trauma, or does it mean that we should actually correct it? In a large cohort, they found about 13% were hypocalcemic and 3% were hypercalcemic. The rest had normal calcium levels, and this was among 
pretty injured patients with an ISS on average of about 20. The percent of patients with calcium disturbances to me seemed a little low compared to the rest of the literature, but regardless, what do we take from this? I wouldn't just empirically give calcium to all trauma patients. We don't know whose level is high, normal, or low. I'll break down my approach across kind of three clinical scenarios. Number one, profound hemorrhagic shock. These are the patients that look like they might die. Pressure 60, severely injured, I'm anticipating MHP. I give calcium to these patients after I've ordered and given TXA and started the first unit of PAC cells. And I'll continue to give calcium empirically every three units of PAC cells or until I have regular labs to guide management. Number two, the more stable patients, but those that are receiving blood. These are the patients who have systolic BPs, maybe in the 80s to 90s. Maybe they're talking to you like our patient at the beginning. I actually hold off until the th- I'm starting the third unit of, of PAC cells. And the third case, basically everybody else, I wait till I get a calcium level back. And really, if they're not needing blood, it's I can't remember the last time I ever gave calcium. I think for those of you who are looking for an even more simplified approach, if you're giving blood, you can give one to two grams of calcium and redose it every th- three units of PAC cells thereafter. Just recognize that there is a risk of giving calcium to the rare patient who's actually hypercalcemic if you're not waiting for labs. In terms of dosing and administration, I usually give two grams of calcium gluconate, but when I have a cordis or a really good 16 gauge in the AC, I might give uh, a gram of calcium chloride. We should also realize we don't have studies telling us that replacing calcium results in better outcomes. All we know is that being too low or too high is associated with worse outcomes. But until the better data is available, I will continue to treat it. So back to our case, the patient initially only required one unit of PAC cells, so I decided to wait for a level. However, she then dropped her pressure more, required further transfusions, and as we started the third unit, I started the calcium. And I'll continue to redose it after every three units of PAC cells. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. love the details on that topic. So think of calcium in your bleeding trauma patients. It's reasonable to give it empirically for the ones getting a massive hemorrhage protocol, and it's a bit more nuanced in the patients who are a bit less sick. Don't forget to follow the serum ionized calcium, which can help guide the need for calcium replacement. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's EM Quick Hits. Hope you learned a little something about methylene blue and septic shock that our ICU colleagues may be asking for it, but that we need a bit more data for it to be prime time to give in the ED for all septic shock patients on pressors. For TMJ dislocations, I was reminded about the syringe technique and learned about the technique of pushing back on the coronoid posteriorly while pulling the jaw anteriorly on the other side. I love the framework of thinking about Crohn's disease exacerbations and complications in three phenotypes, inflammatory, stricturing and penetrating, and then which of those require steroids in the ED. We talked about what the best analgesics are for renal colic to get your patients comfortable and to avoid bounce backs. Don't forget to give a prescription for NSAIDs in all patients except those with major contraindications, and consider adding a PPI with the NSAID in patients with a history of gastritis or duodenitis. And think about the dosing of NSAIDs and morphine and get that one right. 
For your asthma patients, give a steroid inhaler prescription on discharge from the ED. They improve outcomes. And finally, think calcium in bleeding trauma patients. Now, in our next main episode, I had the true honor of interviewing one of the most impressive human beings I've ever met, Dr. Ben McKenzie. He's an ED doc from Australia who has made it his mission to teach the EM world about the crashing anaphylaxis patient ever since his 15-year-old son, Max, tragically died from anaphylaxis in an emergency department two years ago. Now, we don't see crashing anaphylaxis very often, but you're likely to at least once in your career. And when you do, there are a series of time-sensitive steps you need to take to save that life. So I hope you can join us for that very important main episode podcast. Until next time, take it easy.